Welcome to the Radio Book Club, a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Stephanie Schindhelm, and I'm here with Arson Kashkashian, here live at the Boulder Bookstore. Arson, who have we been reading for the month of September? Well, our guest is Stephen Graham Jones. This is his third time on the show. Just so excited to have him back for his new book, My Heart is a Chainsaw, which is an amazing book, an homage to all slasher films forever. But you don't have to be a slasher viewer to really like this book. He's created a an amazing character, an amazing setting, and we're going to get into all that. And so, welcome, Stephen. We're so happy to have you. I'm glad to be back. Thanks for having me. So, let's talk about, like I said, this book is kind of an homage to slasher movies. So, what's the genesis of the idea of it, and, and perhaps your love of slashers, and how you wanted to try to work it into a book? How did that come about? Um, you know, I fell in love with slashers when I was... Well, I guess I fell in love twice. I don't know if you can do that, really. Um, and still be honest to the slasher, you know. <laughs> but but um, I was six years old in 1978. Yeah, 1978. And I'm um, sleeping on my grandmother's floor. And she lived way out in the country. You couldn't even see another light if you went outside her house at night. And um, way on the corner of her 10 acres, my uncle, 17, 18, he had a little camper trailer that he and his new wife were living in. And, you know, I'm six years old, they're 18, and they're like the titans on my landscape. They can do no wrong. I wanted to cut my hair like them, wear my boots like them, everything. You know how it is when you have older cousins or uncles like that. And and um, so I'm sleeping on my grandma's floor about 2 in the morning, I guess, and there comes a knock. And I wrap myself in my blanket. It's November. I huddle to the door. And... Um, open it and it's my aunt and uncle and they're standing there in a blanket as well and and they say hey stevie can we come sleep on the floor with you everybody called me stevie back then and um and i said i said yeah sure but but what for and they said we just went to town and saw halloween and we can't sleep in our place anymore and um <laughs> and i distinctly remember standing to the side and holding that screen door open while they huddled past and looking out into that great blackness of the pasture the night and thinking what could make these amazing people be that scared that they would have to retreat to sleep on the floor with me in my grandma's house you know so that's the that was my first contact with slashers and next i was 14 i guess 13 eighth grade however old you're in eighth grade and living down around wimberley in wimberley texas before wimberley got to be like a you know kind of frou-frou place and um um if y'all know wimberley i don't know but i got to run with a group of people, group of kids who, if we went to the video store after school on Friday, like somebody's big sister or something worked there, and they, she would sneak us a stack of Jason and Michael and Freddie tapes, and if we had them back right at opening the next morning, she didn't have to log them out for some reason, and so we'd get them free. And that Friday night, we would go to another friend's garage, his house, with a garage that was separate from the house out in the trees. And his dad had put a little 13-inch TV in there, and we had an old ratty couch, and there'd be like six or eight of us piled on that couch, and we'd watch Jason and Michael and Freddie and just, you know, cringe and scream and laugh and everything. And come about two in the morning, my friend's dad would get deep enough into his beer that he would put on his Freddie glove and come and scratch his claws on that garage door, and we would just explode at the side of that garage. And we had a rule that if we could make it to the creek and jump in, we were safe. You know, he wasn't going to get us. And he was kind of untrustworthy, you know. So we didn't, I mean, it wasn't just that he was wearing a Freddy glove, it's that he was him, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and but that, that feeling of running through the darkness, like crying from fear but smiling at the same time and swaying my back in, um, 
to me is the essential feeling of a slasher, that laughing and screaming at the same time. And I just got addicted and I've been there ever since. So the heart of the book is a character named Jade. She's a senior in high school, native girl in a town that's, um, she's really like the only Native American in the town. And so talk about her character, how, how she developed. And I was very interested in the acknowledgments where you said, and, and partially what you just said, is, but I was Jade too. So, you know, how much is, are you connected with Jade? And because she's somebody who's totally into slashers, you know, that's what the whole book really is, is, is through her mind and how she sees the world. Yeah, uh, like what Jade and I share, I guess, is we're, I was a janitor in high school as well. I was a night custodian for the biggest daycare in Texas, which is its own special kind of horror. Um, especially the, the potty training room, they called it, which was tiled floor and ceiling and wall. It was, it was a bad place to go at two in the morning. <laughs> and um, let's see, Jade and I, I was always the outsider too. Uh, we moved all the time when I was growing up. And so I was always a new kid on the playground having to like bluff my way in somewhere. Um, I used to get sent home from school all the time for my t-shirt selections, um, just like Jade does. Um, like Jade, I used to think, I remember being under five somewhere probably, and um, I knew I was Indian, but I knew my dad was twice as much Indian as I was by blood. And I thought that as I got older and got more physical blood, I had more volume, you know, of blood, that I would be more Indian. And so like Jade, <laughs> I thought that it increased the older you got, you know? <laughs> um, let me see. And yeah, we both are into horror, of course, and specifically slashers. Jade is much smarter than I was at her age. When I was 17, I knew, I probably couldn't have um, picked John Landis from John Carpenter, you know? But I, I could tell you the subtle differences between a 64 Cat Eye Chevy and like a, a GMC, you know, that had a different, slightly different grill. I knew trucks inside out, but I didn't know directors, actors, horror movie trivia, any of that. So um, Jade would definitely trounce me in a contest. I felt like Jade, I mean, she was a character that was very easy to connect with, but she was also very believable. Do you do anything in particular to get into the head of a teen girl? Um. You know, when I was writing it, my daughter was 17, so that probably contributed a lot, <laughs> I suspect. <laughs> and also, I had friends who read it who had been 17-year-old girls themselves, and I asked them lots of questions, and they corrected me in every way I can be corrected, which is a whole lot of ways. And, um, and I had a lot of people take me to task. Jade changes her hair color with her mood, pretty much, you know? She just, why not? And um, I had to have it explained to me that you can't do that without your hair falling out, you know? That it'll... It'll go bad after a while. So I had, to, I had to work that into the story. So the story is told um, mostly in third person, but in between the chapters are these essays that, you, um, that are written from Jade. Jade writes them, and they're written to her history teacher. So I thought maybe you could tell us a little bit about these essays, why they're there in the book, and also read one of them for us. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, these essays, Jade has, her father is not really a father figure in her life so much, but she has in her community of Proof Rock, Idaho, 8,000 feet up the mountain, she has a sheriff who cares for her almost like a father would, and she has a history teacher who is hard on her, but it's because he really, it's not that he sees potential in her, it's that he sees her getting lost, I guess, if that makes sense. And so they have a, a good, I don't know, a good it's a good relationship and it's also a combative relationship, but he extends her extra credit papers because she never does her proper state history work very well. 
Um, so he lets her write papers on slashers to satisfy just, she's getting words done on a page, basically, you know? And those papers, her extra credit papers, are between all the chapters of My Heart is a Chainsaw. And yeah, I'll read you um, Jade's take on Final Girls right quick here. It's in her voice. It's in Courier, too. You can't tell that. <laughs> Don't feel bad, Mr. Holmes. Not everybody knows about the final girl in the slasher, but let me give you this blood pass. It's like a hall pass, just all the lights are off. First, and this goes without saying, final girls have the coolest names. Ripley, Sydney, Strode, Stretch, Connor, Crane, Cotton, even Julie James from I Know What You Did Last Summer has that double initials thing going on that kind of gets your mouth addicted to saying her name. They're more than cool names, though. As you can tell by what they're called, they're also the last girl alive. But that only means she's last, maybe by luck and not best, when the actual reason she's last is that she is the best of us all. The reason she's final is her resolve, sir, her will and her insistence not to die. She runs and falls, of course, and probably screams and cries too, but this is because she started her horror journey out bookish and timid with good values, the home by 930 good big sister type. But of everybody in the movie, she's the one with more inside her. By which I mean at a certain point in all the running away, during all the stalking and slashing, when the bloodlettings reached a sort of crazed frenzy where the bodies are just falling left and right in between, this final girl stands up through the heart of it all, through the fragile shell of her old self, and she goes toe to toe with this bad evil. The final girl is a hero for our times, sir. Kind of like a certain student, Principal Manx, can't really prove was me, leaving that, that bucket of pig's blood in the rafters of the Sadie Hawkins dance that wasn't even really pig's blood. But the best, the best ever example of a real and actual final girl is from Just Before Dawn, where Constance finally turns to face her mountainous hillbilly slasher, who's already carved through the rest of her friends. She's had enough. Being attacked over and over, it hasn't weakened her. It's cut away her restraints. The slasher thought he was tormenting her. He thought he was the one in charge. Wrong. He was fashioning his own death. He was building the perfect killing machine. What this final girl does is turn around, scream into his face that she's so sick of this, that this is enough, that this is over. And then, in a move not matched in all the years since, not even by Sidney Prescott, not even by slow motion Alice when Pamela Voorhees won't stop coming at her. Not even by Jamie Lee Curtis in that long dark night of Haddonfield. Constance climbs up her slasher's front side and because she has no weapon, because she is the weapon, she forces her hand into her slasher's mouth down his throat and then she reaches in deeper and comes out with his life pulsing in her fist. To put it in, in conclusion, sir, final girls are the vessel we keep all our hope in. Bad guys don't just die by themselves, I mean. Sometimes they need help in the form of a fury running at them. Her mouth open and scream, her eyes white hot, her heart forever pure. That's the first time I've ever read from this book aloud. <laughs> that was author Stephen Graham Jones reading from his latest book, My Heart is a Chainsaw. He's joining us live from the Boulder Bookstore as part of the Radio Book Club. So there she's talking about the final girl and um, you're, you're wearing your final girl t-shirt. So, and that becomes a big piece of this book because Jade comes to believe that she's kind of living in a slasher. A slasher is happening around her. And one of the keys to believing that is she thinks she has identified the final girl. Finally, this town has a final girl. 
So talk about that dynamic and, and who and and why does she think she's living in a slasher movie? She's um, well, number one, slasher. She insulates herself with slashers. She's an outsider in her family. She's an outsider at high school. She's an outsider in her town, and so standing all alone at the periphery of everything, she has to wrap herself in something, you know, or she'll freeze to death, basically. So she wraps herself in horror movies and slashers, and um, therefore slashers become the the gauze or the lens she sees every interaction through so that when a couple of or when when bodies start turning up in proof rock she recognizes this as lining up with the opening beats of a slasher and she tries to ring the alarm you know to it's less less to stop it from happening and more to be the one to call it out you know that's she's been wishing for a slasher forever slashers are basically justice fantasies and jade sees the need in her life for a lot of justice a lot of revenge she feels like she's in that position and i think she is but yeah final girls are definitely key here and um jade doesn't see herself as matching up to the ideal of a final girl so she identifies another character as that final girl and she's judging solely by outer characteristics and that's kind of the final girl we've inherited ever since we started getting final girls in 1974's Black Christmas probably um, and all of that like all the virgins we've got have added up into this final girl who is so perfect that she's basically an unattainable ideal you know and I think final girls are wonderful in that they're a model for how to resist bullies in our own lives whether that's a a boss or some authority figure in our life or a spouse or whoever it is, final girls tell us to insist on our own lives that we matter, you know, and they, they tell us how to fight. Um, but Jade, sensing the opening beats of a slasher, knows that she has to find a final girl to prop up against that slasher in order to make the slasher cycle be fully realized. So she does identify someone who fits those outer characteristics of the final girl and probably the inner characteristics too. But to me, the problem with the final girl that we've inherited or that we've kind of developed is that she is unattainable. Like, um, how, can, how can she actually be a model for us to resist bullies if we can't fit into her mold, you know? Um, so what I wanted to do with My Heart is a Chainsaw is you know, suggest the possibility that a final girl is not how you present. A final girl is what you've got inside of you, you know? And my dream is that some young girl will read this and recognize herself in the final girl in my heart as a chainsaw, you know? So Jade, the person she picks is Letha, and, and she has one characteristic that is not common among final girls. She's black. And so, of course, Jade can't even think of herself as a final girl, probably because she's Native American. So I guess, you know, I want to tease this out a little bit. Like, what, what is it? So she said at one point in the narrative, it says, um, Jade, this is Jade kind of thinking. It's third person, though. In comparison to the one she's in, the slasher she's in, they're kind of pale. The slasher genre is very white, isn't it? It is, yeah. It, it almost always is. I mean, when the slasher started out with Halloween, it was um, about this lurking presence being present in predominantly white, safe suburbia, you know, and that, that was the fear. Um, and then it was kind of cool that Michael Myers had the whitest face of all, you know, <laughs> but uh, that's a fun dynamic. But, um, but yeah, Letha is black, and um, she, so she doesn't, like, 
Jade is trying to, you know, reel back through her um, mental Rolodex of slashers to think, has there ever been a precedent for Letha Mondragon, for a black final girl? And up until when this novel is set, 2015, as far as I know, and as far as Jade knows for sure, <laughs> there hasn't been. You know, there, the, black, the black girl in the slasher is usually the friend who asks um, the final girl, are you all right? You know, um, they're, they're, and they're usually present in the sequel, not in the um, original installment, which is to say they're basically a Band-Aid. They're the creators or the studio, whoever, saying, uh-oh, we forgot to put people of color in here. Let's throw somebody in, you know? Um, but um, I think Jade is trying to offer a little bit of a corrective in identifying Letha Mondragon as a final girl, you know? Mm -hmm. Or I hope she is, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Do you f are you trying to offer a little bit of a corrective with, with, with Jade? I don't want to give much away, but with Jade's role, there's, you know, Jade yeah. being a Native American and how she sees these slasher, slasher films and how she wants to be, I mean, is that a bit of a corrective as well? It definitely is. And I mean, um, Jade being native and you know taking on the role she does in the slasher is definitely me saying, um, you haven't seen enough of our faces in these movies, in these stories, you know? Um, you know, when I turned this novel in, I, I thought it was just about slashers. My, my editor wrote back and said, hey, you wrote a novel about gentrification. And so I like silently tabbed over and searched up gentrification. You know, what, what exactly is gentrification? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I was trying to come at was like, um, I don't know, colonialism, you know? Like, um, but I, gentrification and colonialism is really the same dynamic, I think. It's a displacement process and it leaves rubble in its wake, basically. And so, yeah, Jade kind of resisting Terra Nova, Terra Nova being the real world, you know, it was, it was fun to play with anyways. Um, I was more invested in the slasher, I think, because the slasher has to work in order for the novel to work, but it was definitely fun to um, like poke at the Terra Nova idea, you know? So throughout the book, you, uh, Jade, with, like with the, with the essay that you, you read before, she hits on, she, she likes to write these essays about all the different tropes that are in slashers. So what sort of, how did you want to play with those tropes in your novel? Because you do, you, you, you mention all of them, you know, which is very helpful for people who maybe aren't quite as versed in all the slashers, but there are so many different tropes that are like, and things that it's like, oh yeah, that's, that, yeah, that is true. I guess I hadn't thought about it that way, but how did the, you want to play with that? The challenge of that for me, which was a really fun challenge was, can I both call out all the um, conventions or the formula or the steps and the progression? Can I call that out? and still at the same time surprise the reader, you know? Um, that's what Scream does so effectively. It calls out all the rules and then it still ambushes us. And I respect that so much. And that's what I was trying to do with My Heart is a Chainsaw. And I'm gonna stumble into spoiler territory if I answer any more, <laughs> I suspect. Fair, fair. <laughs> I, I wanted you to go into um, Terra Nova a little bit. I mean, what a great name. You know, <laughs> just like, you know, um, so tell tell everybody about what is this community that's happening. So basically, a Jade lives in a town that's you know not not very well off. It's, it's a small town. Um, they're on the edge of a national forest. But what happens with this Terra Nova project? Yeah, Proof Rock is like I was saying, eight thousand feet of the mountain in um, eastern Idaho, a very rural community by a reservoir, which they, it's Indian Lake, and you know they're just cooking along, having a good time, being themselves. But kind of on chance, 
this business tycoon, he's a real estate developer, stumbles through their community and sees this, you know, supposedly pristine environment and lush nature and untrammeled America, all that stuff. And he's like, hey, I gotta have some of that. And um, so he and his cronies who are also like, you know, Facebook starters and banking tycoons and um, they own basketball teams, all that kind of stuff. Um, um, they legally maneuver such that they carve out a lip of Indian Lake on the opposite side from Proof Rock, and that is the National Forest, but they're able to claim it for themselves, 10 acres, and they build a, they're throwing up some mansions over there, kind of their resort, or it, it's billed as the most gated community in all of America, because you can only get there by boat or swimming, I guess, but the lake is pretty cold, you don't want to swim in it. and. Yeah, so um, what's happening basically is Camelot is going up across the lake from Terra Nova. And Terra Nova is, I mean, I'm sorry, from Proof Rock. And Proof Rock's always been happy with itself, or happy enough, you know, as happy as you can be. But once you are living in the shadow of castles like that, you're going to reevaluate yourself, I think, you know. And, um, and also, Terra Nova is using Proof Rock kind of as a staging area for all of its equipment to get across the lake. And so, yeah, Terra Nova is just using Proof Rock to have a little vacation home, basically. Well, and the, and the people who are making Terranova, the, these rich people, refer to themselves or are referred to as the founders. Yeah, yeah, they're called that in the media, um, that they are founding a new community, and so they, they become the founders. And um, But they're founding Terranova. Terranova's a new world, so yeah, they're signing constitution, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so a lot of history going on, kind of. You're nodding at history as well as slashers. And, and we touched upon Mr. Holmes as the history teacher that she's writing these slasher papers for. And Jade wants nothing to do with this Idaho history that's kind of coming at her that she can't see herself in at all. And so, I mean, I guess talk about that, that, you know, what it's like. You talked about your background some, where you don't see yourself in this history at all or... You, you, you're, you're on the flip side of that history. Every victory is a negative thing in a way. Yeah, um, Jade doesn't, she, she calls her state history course brainwashing 101, you know? And that's basically, a lot of the history classes and books you get are basically brainwashing, you know? Let's all be happy in, in and with America, you know? But, um, and so her failing history class is a form of rebellion, <laughs> or that's how, that's how she would probably phrase it anyways, you know? Um, other people might say you're just failing that class, but um, but no, she doesn't see herself reflected or in the pages of that state history. She sees the Oregon Trail cutting across. She sees different mining strikes and you know stuff like that. And um, to me, it makes sense that Jay doesn't care about state history because state history doesn't care about her. You know. Speaking of history and the state, I was thinking about the setting. So setting it in Idaho, setting it in this mountainous area by a lake, uh, was was this chosen randomly, or did you have a specific place in mind when you came up with the idea for this book that it needed to be in Idaho or by a lake particularly? Or yeah, well, I mean, part of that is why not Colorado, right? Because I'm in Colorado, <laughs> <laughs> and the reason I, ch I, you know, my initial first like knee-jerk suspicion was let's do this in Colorado, but um, the trick is like to me. Rural Colorado is a little bit different than rural Idaho. Like in, in rural Colorado, 
people will cruise through on $8,000 road bikes with $5,000 of gear on, you know? And in Idaho, that's not necessarily the case. I think there are places it happens in Idaho, but I don't, in Proof Rock, which I made up, it doesn't happen anyways. I can make the rules in Proof Rock, you know? <laughs> it's not between here and there anyways. But um, I did need it to be um, high elevation, and I needed to be quite rural and isolated. And um, really blue collar too, for a proper contrast with the Terranovans who are moving in with the founders. And I've been through Idaho a lot. I've never actually spent like a summer in Idaho or anything. So I had to watch, you can find like there's Idaho movie one and two on Amazon or somewhere. I watched those <laughs> to try to get a sense of Idaho. And I looked at a lot of books and did all that, all that stuff, you know? I guess research is what you call it, right? Um, but. Um, <laughs> Um, I do wonder, I mean, I've spent a lot of time in Montana and of course a lot of time in Colorado, but I don't think that necessarily means I'm an expert in Idaho. I think somebody from Idaho probably knows some things I don't, you know, and so I worry about that. I worry that, and that could actually be why I made the town up, you know, because I was worried that somebody's going to say, this isn't what this town is like, you know. But I needed some wildlife too, and that's why I need to be isolated in High Mountain. Was the lake particularly important as well? I felt like it was anyway. Yeah, I mean, the, the lake was important for where the final um, battle happens, which I can't, I don't want to give away quite, but um, yeah, I needed that, I needed some thrashing in the water. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're paying homage to my, my favorite slasher in a way, which is Jaws, you know, but you can't, you can't have Jaws on a mountaintop in Idaho without yeah, a lake. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> so, um, I want to ask you about Jade. One last thing about her. You know, early in the books, this isn't really a spoiler. She, um, you know, she she tries to kill herself, or she slits her wrists, and that seemed pretty dark for pretty early in the book. I mean, obviously, it's going to be dark. It's a slasher, but to take that particular your lead character who we're going to live with for 400 pages, I guess take us through that and 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 how you saw that for her. Yeah. Um that was, it was definitely something that I had to really consider doing or not doing, her suicide attempt. And to me, and to Jade too, I think, it's not actually her trying to kill herself, it's her trying to be part of the movie she loves. But, you know, there's that rule in screenwriting, or maybe not, it's a, it's a critique that a lot of, um, you can give to a lot of screenplays and movies as well, that the protagonist doesn't start out far enough back, you know, which is to say, they start out fully developed, like they're commando, they're already the best fighter in the field, you know? And the, the real trick with making a character arc is dialing the character way down so that you can turn them up, you know? And for me, that's Jade's low point, and she can only climb from there. And so I wanted her to have a distinct arc, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so that, and that's after the suicide attempt is when we really start to get to know the sheriff, Hardy. And you think, oh, well, you know, he's, he's kind of set up to be like, the sheriffs and slashers never have any idea what's going on, but he 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 was one of the more surprising characters in the book. He he shows real compassion for her. He she has a real relationship with him, and I wonder if that was based on something in your youth or you know something that's ever happened to you, or is there how did you come up with that? You know, growing up in a small town, you of course know the police officers and the sheriffs, and they were always. Um, the, and the Stanton, Texas is more or less where I grew up. It's 3,000 people, just the same size as Proof Rock. And the officers there will often, if they catch you out doing something on Friday night 
instead of running you in, they'll take you to your parents, you know, that, that kind of place. And that's kind of how Hardy, he kind of operates in that same small town dynamic, you know, which can be just as effective because your parents will probably do something worse to you than you would spending a night in jail, you know. Um, but let me think, are there any model, any actual models? You know, the, the model I used for Hardy was Slim Pickens in the movie The Howling, the sheriff in, in The Howling. And so every time I was writing about Hardy, I could hear Slim Pickens' voice. Do y'all know Slim Pickens? Some of y'all know Slim Pickens, yeah. But he, and she's in a situation where she can't really go back to her parents. So sometimes he holds on to her longer than he would because he doesn't, he thinks he's helping her by not bringing her to her parents. So he has some vision of what's happening in her life that, that maybe is more than she does to some, to, at some level. Yeah, he does. And, and, at the, and also, and this isn't like any big secret in the novel, his own daughter died in the lake many, many years ago. And he's kind of taken Jade on, not in her stead, but kind of in memory of his daughter, if that makes sense, you know? Unfortunately, I think that's coming to the end of our time. It's flown by. Uh, but, uh, Arson, as we do at the end of each of our book clubs, we announce uh, who we're reading for the next month. So, uh, who are we reading for the month of October? We're reading another Boulder author, Hermione Hobby, a uh, book called Virtue, just got released. Um, it's about a totally different kind of thing. It's about a guy who goes to New York City to do an internship in kind of a fancy magazine, and he's kind of seduced by this well-to-do New York lifestyle. and he ends up doing some things morally or realizing his morals have maybe been compromised. So, um, and we'll be recording that live here at the store on Wednesday, September 29th. And uh, so, yeah, that's our next book. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us here at the Boulder Bookstore. Please subscribe to the podcast of the Radio Book Club as we're going to have more conversation with Stephen Graham Jones in the After Hours edition. Thank you all for being here. Yeah, thank you.